Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hey, Houston, the Challenger has landed. It's the station. Uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Stand by for 4.2 G. So just press down now. Just pressing down hard. And now just relax as much as you can. Welcome to Space Boffins, the award-winning space podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists, with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. This time we're in Farnborough in the aerospace and defence company Kinetic, and we're in the control room of their human centrifuge, which is used to train pilots and astronauts, and at least one of us will be spinning around to see how we deal with G-forces. We'll also discover why the mirrors on the massive new James Webb Space Telescope will be bumpy and out of focus. And we hear from one of the women pilots who had the right stuff to be an astronaut in 1960, but never got the chance to go into space. They thought back in the 60s that women should be on the sidelines and be in the kitchen. Well, guess what? I've never been in the kitchen. And more from Wally Funk later on. Well, we're in the control room here at the Centrifuge, and it is gloriously retro. I think this was opened in around 1955, and... Very evidently, this is exactly the same equipment that it was installed with. If you imagine Flash Gordon-type equipment with enormous dials and buttons and knobs, and in fact, there is a huge lever right at the centre of the console which goes around in a semicircle around the operator. And then through the glass is the centrifuge itself, which is a big circular room with this rectangular piece of scaffolding positioned at the moment stationary across it but it has been spinning around at quite a rate within that room and this is a machine that's been around since the very dawn of the space age as illustrated by the boffins in this central office of information film from the late 1950s doctor i understand that you have often been subjected to a force of 6g Would you mind telling me exactly what that means? Well, it's six times the force of gravity, which means that everything in the body weighs six times as much. Well, how does that affect you physically? Well, it pushes you down in the seat. Uh, Blood tends to drain down into one's legs. And, of course, you lose vision temporarily. But the blackout, which... That's what they call a blackout, yeah. Well, um, does it affect you mentally? No, not at all. You're quite clear. can do mental arithmetic. I love the way on that he makes it so mundane. And with us is senior scientist here, Dr John Scott from Kinetic's Human Sciences Division. This isn't mundane at all. This is awesome. It is totally unique, yeah. I'm used to it, I guess, but certainly the typical response from someone who sees it for the first time, it it does remind you that it really is uh, quite a unique piece of machinery and uh, a unique branch of physiology, which, uh, which the average physiology student or sports science student will not learn anything about in their, uh, in their degree. So uh, working here, you do have a, uh, a unique insight into uh, human physiology. 
Now, we better explain that the um, Darth Vader-style breathing in the background there is from a test subject who's inside what's called the gondola, isn't it, of the centrifuge, which is the enclosed box at the end where you put your subject. So what's going on at the moment? What are they undergoing? You're currently witnessing what we would call a, uh, a G familiarisation. So this is where we take individuals who have no previous experience of G and we, uh, we introduce them to the, the basic effects of small increases in acceleration. So we go up to about 4G um, and we introduce some of the, the typical effects which are that you initially feel very heavy. G effectively makes you more heavy. So at 2G you are twice as heavy as you are at 1G, uh, and some of the, the first physiological symptoms that you experience. As you get heavier, obviously your, everything gets heavier, your muscles get heavier, your bones get heavier, and your blood also gets heavier as well. Uh, and heavier blood has a much harder time getting into your brain. Your heart has to work harder to overcome this, this new weight. So uh, the first thing that will happen is that less blood will start to travel into your, uh, your brain, and you will experience a, uh, a strange change in your vision as the blood supply to your eyes starts to slow down. We can see the, the victim, is that the right word? The, uh, we, um, we prefer the word volunteer. volunteer. Yeah. Uh, on the monitor in here, there is, so there is some electronics in the, in the control room here. He looks fairly calm, fairly relaxed. Hands are in the air and he's gone to 3.8G. Why hands in the air? Uh, the hands in the air is simply for you to get a sense of the increase in weight that you you feel when you're on the centrifuge um, obviously all your muscles in your arms and your your fingers are designed to operate at 1g so even at 2g or 2.5g you become quite uncoordinated because you simply don't understand how to move in that new environment so yeah the arms in the air the touching the nose is just to get a real sense of those first physical symptoms that you experience there's another room we can observe what's going on without distracting them and without all this going on in the background yep let's move around there we can talk a bit more here we are now it's a little bit quieter we can still hear the heavy breathing from the monitor on the control room next door now how healthy do you need to be to go on a centrifuge in our current standards that we use for centrifuging obviously the the history of centrifuging is about for it's about it was created for testing and training fighter pilots and the equipment fighter pilots use so the medical standards for fighter pilots are, are fairly high, so you do need to be free of a lot of medical conditions, but generally in, in good physical health and in good physical condition. So originally for fighter pilots, but obviously in the 1950s, this was the, the dawn of the space age, there was a famous centrifuge used to test the Mercury 7 astronauts in the United States with, with NASA was that in the background, do you think, in the history of, of this machine, was not just for pilots but also for potential astronauts? Because Britain at that point had a, had a space programme too. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I guess if you look behind you, you'll see on the wall the, uh, the G-meter, uh, and the G-meter goes up to 30G. <laughs> so back when this was conceived in the late 1940s and finished in the 1955, you're right, we were at the, the dawn of the space age, but we were also at the dawn of trying to understand just how hard we could push our fast jet pilots. So I can imagine there may have been some thought to space at the time because I can't conceive how they would have thought fighter pilots would have been pulling 30G. But certainly we, uh, we know that uh, our, now our fighter pilots technically don't experience more than about 9G or so. Um, but certainly, yeah, if we, were, if we wanted to push the, uh, the Farnborough centrifuge, we could recreate huge amounts of G-forces. And certainly some of the, uh, the initial space rockets, the Saturn Vs, used to gem generate huge amounts of G because of the, the thrusts involved.
And what's going on in the body then? What have pilots and what have astronauts got to be able to, to cope with? What's the reason they need to do these sorts of tests? Well, the major threat that we have for fast jet pilots is something called G-lock, which is G-induced loss of consciousness, which effectively is the, the G-forces that are created by fast jets. The way they operate with a pilot sat upright when they perform loop-the-loops and sharp turns, the G-forces force blood into their feet. Uh, and of course, we all know that we need blood supply into our brain to stay conscious. So uh, if you were to put somebody in a fast jet or on a centrifuge and accelerate them to a relatively high level of G, uh, after five or six seconds, the blood supply to their brain would slow down and eventually stop, and then they would drop unconscious. Obviously, if you go unconscious in a fast jet, then the problem is is significant. And it's and this is why we have created centrifuge facilities to, to train test pilots to uh, so they understand these G-forces, understand the risks. And the, the big issue for astronauts seems to be the coming back now rather than the, the going up into into space. It is, yes. Yeah. So the G-forces are, are created by accelerations. And obviously to get into space, you need to generate a huge amount of speed. And to generate speed, you need to accelerate. So if you want to, uh, to get into space, you need to create accelerations. And accelerations create these forces that cause us, us problems. So um, if you were to imagine, I mean, around about three, three to four G, most people start to experience some of the, the profound symptoms of, of increased acceleration. We, when we were designing, obviously, space rockets, we needed to take this into account. So obviously, in a fast jet, you tend to generate them for a few seconds. Space vehicles would generate them for minutes on end. So what we what we knew from fairly early on, when we understood these effects, we couldn't have astronauts experience five or six G for minutes on end because they would simply go unconscious. So one thing we learned from from centrifuges and from experiments performed on them was if you reorientate the person with respect to the G direction, so in a fast jet the G will they'll experience through their head into their feet. If you reorientate the person so the G comes in through their chest and out through their back, so simply almost like a 90-degree rotation, then people can tolerate a lot more G because the blood isn't forced into their feet, and so the blood supply to their brain carries on, and so actually they can tolerate 10, 15 G. So all we did with astronauts is we simply reorientated them within the space vehicles. So for launch and re-entry, yes, they do experience significant G-forces, but the G is now acting in a different direction in respect to them, and so actually they can tolerate it. It's not pleasant, but you stay conscious and they stay, they stay safe. Well, you've not put me off, and uh, I've won the toss of a coin. And uh, assuming I pass the medical test, I'm going to have a go. You get travel sick on the Eurostar, don't you? I do, but having said that, I love fairground roller coaster rides. So I'm hoping that will override the Eurostar travel. Just looking at the dial up there above us says 30G on it. Yeah, well, I won't be doing that. Anyway... Wish me luck. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientist. You find us on Facebook, Twitter and spaceboffins.com. Now, Builders Hubble's replacement, the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, is starting to come together. The key instruments for the telescope have been tested and delivered, the structure completed, and the tennis court-sized heat shield finalised. The telescope carries a massive 6.5-metre diameter primary mirror made up of 18 individual mirrors, each one made from solid beryllium. And they're very keen to make sure that Unlike Hubble, the telescope is in focus. But as I discovered when I visited Ball Aerospace's factory in Boulder, Colorado, when the JWST is first launched, the mirrors will be slightly bumpy and horribly out of focus. Deliberately. Our guide to the Ball Clean Room is JWST Programme Manager Alison Bartow. 
All right, so you're in our large clean room now. At this point, we're working just on refurbishing some of the motors on the primary mirror segments to give them extra life for the mission. So we'll go on down to the far end and we can see them there. And when you say large clean room, I guess this is what, about the size of a football pitch? Slightly larger even? Not quite as wide, but close to that. And so we're heading down past uh, equipment and tables and benches and cupboards... We're passing a few areas where you need to be even more clean than what you see here. So you have to actually garb into additional outfits to go into some of this area so that if you're really touching the hardware, we're not going to contaminate it with body oils. So there are clean rooms within clean rooms. Exactly. So here we are in our JWST area. JWST is comprised of 18 primary mirror segments to make one large 21-foot, 6.5-meter diameter primary mirror. On that table is a mirror segment. You can see that on the back of it, we have six actuators that control and move it around. And we have to precisely locate these mirrors relative to each other to act as one mirror in space. For example, imagine a piece of paper. The thickness of that is about 100,000 nanometers. We need to move these mirrors about five nanometers at a time clearly far smaller than you can see. So we developed these actuators that can precisely locate the mirrors here at Ball specifically for this program. So each of these 18 mirrors is individually adjustable within this sort of giant mirror that they all form. Exactly. So each one can be moved forward and back, side to side, tip tilted, and then they also each have an actuator that controls the curvature of the mirror itself. So we can control all of that to let them work together as one. Uh, What does that mean for the capability of the entire spacecraft? So if you were to take the entire mirror of um, of the primary mirror, all 18 segments, and you were to imagine that was stretched out to something the size of the United States, there wouldn't be a mountain or a valley higher than two inches. So, <laughs> so what's that, about four centimetres? Right, like that. exactly. Yeah. And how smooth then? Can you give us an idea of how smooth these individual mirrors and the effort that's gone into to making them that smooth? Our mirrors don't just have to be smooth at room temperature where we're polishing them, but when we go down to 30 Kelvin, that's 30 above absolute zero, all materials change shape, right? You can imagine your deck and your doors in your house and how they might kind of fit better or worse in wintertime. Well, that happens to an extreme when we go that cold. So what we have to do is we actually have to polish them pretty well, and then we cool them down to 30 Kelvin, and we look at how they change. And as they go cold, they warp and deform, just like any material. And so we measure how much that happens, and then we take them warm again, and we polish them, but we polish the inverse of that onto them. So any spot that kind of lumped up and created a little bump when it went cold, we go and polish in a little valley in that area. And so that way, after we've done that, we take it cold again. And this time when it cools down, it goes from a very imperfect-looking surface at room temperature to that pristine surface at cryogenic temperatures. We're a few metres away from a single mirror of 18, and that is a sizeable table. So you could imagine that as a, a large kitchen table. And yet you've got 18 of those, all stuck together, all folded up in the spacecraft, blasted into space. The whole thing has got to unfold and then work perfectly. Exactly. We often call it the origami telescope. So when we get into space, a number of things have to happen. First, we have a large sun shield, and that's what helps keep us cold. We have the telescope on one side and the sun on the other side. And this large sun shield that deploys, that's being built at Northrop Grumman, 
is about the size of a tennis court. And so imagine it's made out of material kind of like a potato chip bag. We have five layers of that, the size of a tennis court, that has to unroll and fold out. And after that happens, we take the telescope and it deploys up off of the spacecraft to give it a little space, and then the wings fold out. So you imagine we have these 18 segments and they're in a large hexagonal array. And so there's three on either side that we call the wings, and those have been folded back for launch. And so each of those folds out into position, kind of like a drop-leaf table, you could imagine. And then the secondary mirror is on large booms, and it has to come out to sit many meters in front of the primary mirror, so that folds out as well. And then after we've done all that, all we've done is gotten the structure into the shape we need. Now we have to move the mirrors themselves. And to withstand launch, we actually have to pull them back when we launch into stowers. And then we move them out 12 and a half millimeters. And from that point, we can begin the process of aligning them to act as one mirror. All in all, the process to align that full mirror is going to take about six months. So that's gradually adjusting each one of these 18 mirrors to work together as one giant mirror. Exactly. The only feedback we get to do that is looking through the cameras themselves. So when we first deploy, these 18 mirrors are going to be pointed all over the place. And so we have to go and find the 18 little fuzzy spots in our images. And from those spots and finding where they're pointed, figure out how to move each of these mirrors to have all of those line up on top of each other in a well-focused image. And is it coming to a point where you're getting excited about this now? It's kind of funny because we love having this hardware and building it. And we've put in, you know, all of, our, all of our energy and time, but it's exciting to see it leave. James Webb Space Telescope Programme Manager at Ball Aerospace, Alison Barto. And I'll put a picture of the two of us in our clean room clothes on our Facebook page. Sue is now about to get into the centrifuge. To tell me what's going on. Well, we're in the circular room now, and you can hear from there's quite a, an echo going on. I'm with Alex Stevenson, who's uh, one of the lead physiologists for the work here, and we're with Dr. Brown, who's our uh, medical officer for today, providing supervision for Sue. I'll actually be in the uh, centre of the gondola, so I'll be turning around like uh, you're on a child's roundabout, whereas you'll be sitting in the gondola, which will then spring out at a 90-degree angle, and you'll be uh, whizzing around and feeling the G. I'll just uh, be feeling slightly uncomfortable in the middle. (laughs) Great. Well, I am really looking forward to it. I really am. And it does look like a child's climbing frame, actually, doesn't it? Right, I'll climb in. Yeah, do climb in, and we'll um, we'll see what we can do. We'll get you strapped in first. all locked in so what I need you to do now is just tighten your straps yeah Yeah, happy right so you just got to put your feet on the um, the pedals there okay and all you got to be happy that you can just tense up your legs if you need to uh, in case that the vision comes in you lose it and do you have any advice do I have to actually just sit here as I would normally as if I was watching tv or do I have to tense my muscles to get the most out of the situation I try and be as relaxed as you can it's always difficult in the first run because you don't know what to expect But try and be as relaxed as you can and just watch what happens to the vision, see how it feels. We'll start very low. Okay. So the risk of actually losing consciousness because you haven't got enough blood going to your brain is very, very low. So it'll just give you a feel of what it's like. It's uh, sort of the acceleration you might get or the gravity you might feel at Jupiter, that kind of level. So 2.6 okay. G, so a fair Excellent. amount. But not enough to knock you out, but enough to make you feel 
two and a half times heavier than you are Fantastic. now. So all you can do is we, we say, be relaxed and try and move your hands up a bit. Control yeah. your hands, just feel how heavy they weigh at that level. Uh, just, be, just be thoughtful that obviously when you bring your hands up, they weigh two and a half times, but they will come down a lot quicker because they weigh a lot more. So when you drop them, bring them down rather than sort of just let them go because oh, right. they'll come down quicker on your lap. Control. So just, yeah, feel it. Okay, take me to Jupiter. Okay, while Sue's locked into the gondola, I'm going to head up to the control room and watch the experience unfold. Hey, Sue, are you ready for the first run then? It'll be uh, the, the two and a half G one, which we talked about. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, Graham, Sue's ready. We're ready for 2.6 G for 15 seconds, please. Stand by, 2.6 G for 15 seconds. And uh, it's just building up now. So describe how you feel. <laughs> Describe the feeling when it stopped. Your stomach lurching as if you've gone over that top of a roller coaster and suddenly stopped, and the pressure relieving from your cheekbones. Yeah, well, you look quite comfortable for me, so um, would you like another go at 2.6, or would you like me to up it to 3G? Let's try 3. Okay, Graham, we'll have 3G for 15 seconds. Stand by, 3G, 15 seconds. Hey, Sue, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, here it comes. Try and touch your nose. I've tried to, oh, my hands are so heavy. To touch my nose, wow. And down again. Wow. That's a little bit more of a rush. Slightly lightheaded. Okay, how are you feeling now that it's come to a stop? I say, slightly lightheaded as if you stood up too quickly and you suddenly think, woo. Okay. Which is more or less exactly the same um, physiological effect of standing up um, uh, too quickly. Would you like me to up it to something like 3.4 G? And what would that be like? What would that be similar to? You'd feel uh, obviously a little bit more heavy. I won't ask you to touch your nose, um, but if you just uh, concentrate on keeping your vision and uh, tensing your abdomen and legs, um, you shouldn't grey out at all. I must admit, I forgot to do that last time, so I'll try it you still look quite comfortable to me so i think there's plenty of reserve left in you yet okay <laughs> uh, in that case graham we'll go for 3.4 g for 15 seconds please okay. stand by 3.4 g 15 seconds tilting again get ready to tense if you need to that's 3.4 
no, it uh, it does make a significant difference, but it was worth uh, is worth just feeling the weight of your arms at three and a half times the normal weight. And the feeling that stretch on your face. Whoa. Yes, we know what you look like when you're going to be 15 years older now. <laughs> right, well, I'm running down from the control room now to go see the immediate after effects of uh, the experience on Sue. What was that like? Let's get the immediate reaction. I really enjoyed it. It's given me a newfound respect for what astronauts must go through on takeoff and landing because it's not just a, a thrill ride, which I love. There is that feeling of uncomfortableness. For me, it was in my face. I felt as though my face was being dragged down with the pressure. And that's not especially comfortable. I mean, you must have done it yourself. I know, yes. You talk about astronauts, but also um, uh, fighter pilots, high-performance aircraft pilots, aerobatic pilots, even crop sprayers where they're pulling up to uh, 5, 6, 7G, the fighter pilots 9G. So they're at a a completely different level. But, of course, they have a lot more protection, uh, the anti-G protection on them, which you're there sitting there really with uh, just the clothes you came in so you're much more limited to what you can do. Well when this centrifuge and others like it around the world were built they were designed to put men and only men at the time through their paces to see if they had the right stuff to be astronauts. Well in the late 1950s NASA was desperate to get a man into space and they recruited from a profession who could handle pressure and had the technical ability to fly aircraft. Pilots, in other words, resulting in the famous Mercury 7. Ladies and gentlemen, today we are introducing to you and to the world these seven men who have been selected to begin training for orbital space flight. Which of these men will be first to orbit the Earth? I cannot tell you. He won't know himself until the day of the flight. From your right, Malcolm S. Carpenter... Leroy G. Cooper, John H. Glenn, Virgil I. Grissom, Walter M. Shira, Alan B. Shepard, Donald K. Slayton. These ladies and gentlemen are the nation's Mercury astronauts. These brave men underwent extensive training to get selected for space, which included physical and psychological testing at the Lovelace Medical Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The head of the center, Randy Lovelace, also wanted to know how women would shape up too, and so he contacted 25 female pilots, some with more flying experience than John Glenn, and 13 of them passed. Unfortunately, they never got to go into space. And I've been speaking to one of those women, Wally Funk, who's now in her 70s and still working as a pilot, and she still wants to go into space. In 59, they tested 100 guys. Only seven made those tests. So Loveless said, well, there's something wrong with this picture. Let's see what the girls can do. He picked 25 girls, and I was not on that list. Jerry Cobb said, you need to put Wally Funk on that list because she comes from 7,000 feet of altitude. I've ski raced all my life and would have the lung capacity. And sure enough, that proved out to be positive. I've never drunk. I've never smoked. And the guys all did. So when Loveless found out about me and where my hometown was, just 150 miles north of him, he got on right away and said, Wally, you report such and such time. And I was the third one to take the test. All of my tests proved better because I could do more than the guys did. 
I could stay on top of water without ever having a problem for 10 hours and 35 minutes. Most of the people only went five hours. Whatever they said I needed to do, I did better. And that's what the loveless doctors said, Wally, you never complained. And I didn't because that's, not, that's the way I was brought up. You don't complain, you keep moving ahead. So they picked 13 out of the 25 that could pass those tests. And they were rigorous. I mean, there were a bicycle tests that they said, well, if you can go to five minutes, that's great. The back wheel was impeded to where it would be like going up Pikes Peak, which is a 45 degree angle. And I called on my second wind and my third wind, and I made it to 10 minutes and, and 15 seconds. Broke that record. Everything they told me to do, I broke a record. That was a physical record. Now, that test was to rid me of all my strength, Sue. And when it was all over, of course, I had all those electrodes all over my head, my body. And I said, they said, Wally, you've done fine. We can stop now. And I said, just take the electrodes out, and then we're going to help you off the bike. I said, I don't need any help. I've been pretty bold in my life to get where I needed to go. I said, I can get off the bike by myself. Sue, I promptly fell off the bike, and he picked me up and put me to bed because my body was completely depleted of strength. It was incredible. At the end, though, when you knew you'd passed those tests, did you realize, you must have realized between you, that you had all passed and that you had the potential to be astronauts regardless of what the political situation is was in the 60s and that they were behind the times you knew that you had the right stuff you bet i had the right stuff and when you see the right stuff they did exactly what they did to the guys that they did to us and they did a little bit more to the girls because loveless wanted to see how far he could go with a girl and even when i was in russia they did a little bit more than they did with the guys and still prove true that girls were more satisfactory in the physical anatomy part and what we could do if you were a strong person, strong-minded, willed, you could do it. They thought back in the 60s that women should be on the sidelines and be in the kitchen. Well, guess what? I've never been in the kitchen. I can't go in there and cook. I can do it in a microwave, but um, that's not part of my thing. I'm not at home. I'm always at the airport. And um, I, I feel very lucky to have been able to have gone through all these tests and to have had this chance, we only have two or three girls left, and I'm the only girl that still flies for a living. I have taken three to four different weekly tests all around the United States and in Russia at the um, Cosmonaut Center to prepare myself to go into space. I've been with four different companies, and now I am wanting to go up with Sir Richard Branson on Virgin Galactic. But the big thing now to not only getting into space, Sue, but I can take my programs. I just came back from a state back south for one week speaking to five organizations, teaching the kids how far they can go if they want to. Wally Funk, great to hear that her dream to get into space is finally being realised as she's slated to go up on Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2 in 2015. And if you want to hear more about what Wally and her fellow female pilots went through in the early 1960s, you can hear it on a BBC radio documentary that I made in 1997. But fortunately, it's been archived on the BBC website and you'll hear from several of the women involved, particularly as not all of them are alive now. So 
uh, it's a good listen if you're interested in space history. We'll put a link up on our Facebook page and also via our Twitter feed. Back to Sue then. Want to know how she got on? What was her experience on this? So let's ask the, the doctor. Simon, <laughs> you were sitting in the, the middle of the centrifuge. I've never seen that before with these these centrifuges. So you're kind of right in the middle, spinning around, but not getting any G-forces. Sue is on the end of this, this gantry, spinning around. How did she get on? She, she was wanted more, didn't she? Sue, Sue did well. I mean, she, she adapted it uh, to it very well. She was quite comfortable straight up to the uh, two and a half G. Looked very comfortable, was able to give a running commentary. So... Uh, I'd have earmarked here as somebody who I'd have been quite happy to take up um, in steps up to the maximum we can do for what we call untrained people up to about four and a half G. After that, then she'd need a little bit more training and then we could have uh, hopefully taken her all the way. You say training. Can you train then for G-forces? Can you condition your body? Is there anything you can do to to stop yourself blacking out, losing vision, experiencing these effects? Yes, and that's exactly what the uh, the military and aerobatic pilots do. You practice uh, certain straining manoeuvres, intensing your leg muscles, your abdominal muscles, and then the next stage is uh, controlled breathing where you have to snatch a breath in, release it over about a three-second period, snatch the next breath in. And this is uh, this is what the guys train on the centrifuge to do, and this will give them a, a much higher degree of G protection. Uh, John, if I come back to to you, your looking at training space tourists here not unlike us often older certainly have a great deal more money than us um what sort of fitness are you after for that well it's one of the key questions that we have for the, the upcoming uh, commercial space flight industry is that obviously historically uh, centrifuging fighter pilots all these people they have been very carefully screened they are fit young healthy individuals uh, and so of course centrifuging has a very safe history now, of course, in the future, uh, the space tourism industry is not designing itself around young, fit, healthy individuals. It's hopefully space for all. So the best situation would be that any single person could participate. But obviously, we know from the work that we do here that centrifuging and G-forces can be quite stressful. They change your blood pressure quite a lot. Your heart rate has to react to that. So they're not uh, necessarily for everybody. So the challenge for the industry really is to try and identify who can and who can't fly and come up with a set of standards that will allow the industry to flourish but simultaneously will protect all the people who are going to be part of the industry as, as passengers. Do you see potentially a time where those in Britain and the UK who've signed up for commercial tourist space tourism flights in, from the States in the future could pay to come here to have a go and see whether it suits them or not because they might change their mind after they've done this centrifuge? It's certainly something that we are, we are looking at as a, as a business. Obviously, we have, we're very lucky to have the facilities that we do have, and uh, the Farmer Centrifuge obviously is one of the oldest centrifuges in the world, but we do also operate a centrifuge in Sweden, which is one of the most modern ones. Um, and with this centrifuge, it's computer-controlled. We can recreate pretty much any G profile of any vehicle ever, past, present, or future. So we can actually give people a genuine experience of what the G-force profiles of these vehicles will be, both the launch and the re-entry ones. So, yeah, if there are ticket holders who uh, would like to do preparation and training, we can provide something for them. If there are people who are thinking about buying a ticket, we can give them an experience which may help them decide either way. Um, and if there are people that genuinely just want to know what other people are going to be going through, then simultaneously they, they can experience it as well in, in a safe and controlled environment. 
Uh, and Simon, in terms of the, the what Sue was going through and her body was going through, could she take more? And could an averagely fit person take more? You know, I looking thinking of the the Virgin Galactic or the Link space plane, where some of the profiles you talk about around about four G, even five G, I think, on the Link space plane coming down to Earth. Yes, four G isn't um, a huge amount of G for those who are experienced at it. Also, in the uh, space flights, the the onset is is gradual. Uh, it drops off gradually, but it is relentless. We can always hit a stop button, but I think when you're on your way up to the outer atmosphere, I can't think uh, that the Virgin Galactic pilots will uh, take too kindly to that. So you can train, you said, the averagely fit person, probably the averagely unfit person as well. It's 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 an experience which you condition you you can condition the body to, and uh, and with training and practice, most people who are well motivated towards it, and I think if you've paid a sizable sum of money for the experience, they would be well motivated, can be brought up to the level of comfort where they'd, be, they'd feel confident that they could get the most out of the, uh, the space ride. So the averagely unfit multi-millionaire space tourist should be able to do it fairly safely? Yes, and he could probably take his averagely unfit butler with him if he, <laughs> if he so choose. Dr. Simon Brown and Dr. John Scott, thank you both very much for letting us have this amazing opportunity here at the Centrifuge at Kinetic in Farnborough. And that's the Space Boffins podcast. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, ABSL Space Products, and with a grant from the UK Space Agency. And if you want to hear my experience, that'll be in the next podcast. I didn't didn't get on quite as well. (laughs) We're in partnership with The Naked Scientist. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and at spaceboffins.com, which we promise to update with our funky new logo. We'll be back with more from The Final Frontier next month. We leave you, though, with some inspiring words for space boffins everywhere. To scientists, the unknown, the world of tomorrow, is an irresistible challenge. Wherever they live, in the Commonwealth, in the United States, in Russia... Scientists are the pioneers who push back the barriers that restrict man's knowledge.